Welcome to the first Best Nurse Podcast, where each month we share information for and about atrium health nurses. Well, welcome to the first Best Nurse Podcast. My name's Carmen Shaw, and I am here with our co-host, uh, Stephanie McDonald. How you doing, Steph? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. It's so good to to hear from you today. And um, we're just so excited about, um, you know, having released a lot of podcasts this year. Um, but there's really one um, podcast that I think that's been on our list for a long time, and that's around human trafficking. And we know that's something that, um, you know, not not just our state, but our own city here in Charlotte, um, we've been faced with, and and so I'm so excited to have some of our colleagues here on the call um, to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, how nursing impacts that um, here in the community. So, um, Steph, we're going to get it kicked off, and um, we have several guests here um, from Atrium, and um, we're going to just let them quickly introduce themselves and um, tell us a little bit about, you know, who they are and as much as they can. And um, and then we'll get right into this this really heartfelt topic. So um, Angie, we'll start off with you. My name is Angie Alexander, and I have been a nurse at Carolinas Medical Center for 32 years in the emergency department. And in 2007, I was tasked with um, researching sexual assault nurse examiner program for our system. And currently I am the coordinator of the sexual assault um, nurse examiner program for Atrium and we cover 10 hospitals here in the Charlotte area. I'm also the supervisor for the domestic violence healthcare program. So happy to be here today. Thank you, Angie, and thanks for, um, you know, being here and you won a, you were acknowledged or you, you you, you were recognized for a very prestigious award recently. You want to share that with everybody? Yeah, I'm so honored and humbled, but the Emergency Nurses Association, um, I was actually recognized as the Academy of Emergency Nursing Fellow, and I will be inducted in September, and it is such a great honor, um, and I am part of a community of really the giants of emergency nursing, so, so excited about that. Thanks, Carmen. Wonderful, wonderful. Nurses rock at Atrium. All right, Monica, you're next. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having us today. My name is Monica Watts, and I am the nurse manager currently for the Levine Children's Emergency Department here at Atrium Health Charlotte in the greater Charlotte region. Um, I have also been with Atrium Health for 22 years. Um, most of that course has been in um, emergency nursing and about five years in the pediatric intensive care department of um, Levine Children's. Um, I was a sexual assault nurse under Angie and, and with this great group for about 10 years. And um, I tell everyone I was trying Trying to help recruit some new SANE nurses this week, and I told them it was one of the highlights of my career, being able to help those patients. And so um, we love working with all of our populations that need us and come to us for care. So we're really privileged to be here today and very humbled that we get to do this work with our patients. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Monica. Tanika, welcome. 
Thank you. Uh, my name is Tanika Torres, and I have been a nurse with Atrium for 19 years. Um, most of that has also been with the emergency department, but I've dabbled a little bit in like telehealth. Um, but I have been a SANE nurse um, for 12 years, and I am certified in both adults and pediatrics, and I just absolutely love, love, love what I do. I always say if you find a job that you love, it's not truly a job. So I absolutely just have a huge passion for sexual assault and um, domestic violence and, and all that it involves. So thank, thank you so much. Thanks, Tanika. Welcome. And Jennifer, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Jennifer Harris. I am one of the clinical supervisors in the pediatric emergency department at Levine Children's Hospital. I have been a nurse for about 15 years now. The large portion of my career has been in pedi pediatric emergency medicine, um, but there were also portions of my career where I worked in uh, pediatric cardiovascular ICU and pediatric intensive care. But thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of this conversation today. Thank you, Jennifer. We have quite the panel of experts with us, Carmen. We, we do. Um, I'm feeling like I don't know anything today. <laughs> I think we're gonna, we're about to go to school. I, yes, I'm wondering we are. <laughs> if somebody could just start us off, maybe just start us off with what are we talking about when we talk about human trafficking? It's a phrase a lot of people hear all the time, but maybe don't have a, a full understanding of what it means, Who tell us what that, that is. Uh, sure, I can start us off with that. Um, when we say human trafficking or refer to sexual trafficking, uh, by definition, it's the use of force, coercion, or fraud to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. And we hear this term often in the media and in the news and sometimes portrayed in different films and different things like that. And we associate it with a violent abduction, but I think that a lot of people would be very surprised to realize that most of these individuals that are forced into these situations, um, it comes from someone that they love or someone that they trust that has um, coerced them into these um, situations. Um, these traffickers are kind of experts at finding people who are vulnerable. Um, they pull them in by gaining their trust, manipulating their reality, and maybe meeting needs that haven't been previously met. And that can be in the form of a job. It can be in the form of giving them this illusion of um, love and belonging that doesn't actually exist. Um, and sometimes, you know, it can be just a safe place to live um, because some of these individuals don't come from the safest backgrounds and don't have the best home lives in some instances. Um, and so they, this kind of gives them power over their victims and allows them to isolate them from some of their friends and family. And then they slowly kind of start to force them into some of these situations that maybe they aren't super comfortable with. But because these individuals have this illusion of love around this person, the fear of that being pulled away kind of forces them to keep themselves in these situations. And then sometimes these traffickers will start to introduce threats of violence against the individual, um, against their families. Um, sometimes foreign nationals are coming over and their um, identification documents and you know uh, travel documents are taken away and they're not able to get out of these situations. Um, so when we're talking about human trafficking and sex trafficking, um, it's not always what we hear in the media and what we think in our minds. You know, it's it's not always what we think it is. Wow, sounds sounds very tragic. You know, I've heard before that it's actually a 
pretty big problem here in Charlotte. Is, is that a true statement and why is it such a problem here in our area? I can answer that and that's because we have one of the biggest um, travel ways in the United States. We have one of the largest hubs um, with our airport. Um, we have two major highways and um, we just have a, a lot of um, easy travel to get, um, you know, to different places. And that's made it um, very lucrative for trafficking. Is that because people easily can get here to partake or is it the people who are being trafficked are generally moved around? Both. Both. Okay. I'm glad you um, mentioned that, Tanika, because I was going to say why Charlotte and um, because we are, I guess Charlotte is the number one city in North Carolina is what I, I recently read in a July article. Um, but but thank you for explaining the movement hub. I, I never really thought about that. Um, so what what work has gone on behind the scenes? Um, that allows us to identify and manage these patients or, or these, you know, um, these um, victims of human trafficking. Um, I can answer that. So there's a ton of work that we do behind the scenes um, in the pediatric emergency department. I know we've worked very closely with our SANE team and with our local law enforcement teams, um, you know, on some of these cases. And we train our team um, and especially our nurses on a trauma-informed approach. And what we mean by that is um, this is where we are meeting the patient's needs and priorities and their, their needs and priorities are the center of our work. Um, and so what we are trying to do is minimize re-traumatizing these patients because we already know that there has been a huge physical, emotional, and social impact on them already from being in these situations. Um, and so we kind of want to meet them where they are and going by Maslow's hierarchy of physiological and um, safety needs, we want to meet those first. Um, and so, you know, we want to make sure that they feel safe. We want to make sure that they're fed, that they're warm, that they're clothed. Even, you know, I think we have collected underwear and bras and, you know, just simple things like that to have them readily available for these people if they come into the ED. Um, because, I mean, we had children come in here before that probably haven't even had, you know, underwear or socks and just these basic things that we take for granted all the time, you know, in months. Um, and, you know, we get them in a room, we get them a warm blanket and immediately find out what they want to eat. Because what we want to do is introduce um, control back to them and make them feel like that they have a choice because they've been in situations for so long where they didn't have a choice. Um, and we don't want to mirror the behavior of their traffickers by taking away their power and their sense of self-control. Um, and we don't want them to like force them to answer questions that they're not ready to either. Um, I know I had one child uh, when I brought her back, she was crying and, you know, she said, you'll never understand and kind of going through some of the things that she's went through. And I just told her, I said, you're right. I, I I'm never going to understand what you've been through. And when you're ready, you can talk to us about that and we can figure out how best to help you, but we don't have to do it right now. And so I think it's super important for us to build that instant rapport with them by making them feel secure and safe and by making them feel like we're not going to force them into anything that they don't want to do. And, and Jen, and I apologize, this is, this is a topic that I feel like is evolving for me in terms of understanding um, and I know you all are closest to it. 
so help me when they come when those victims come to your you know your your eds like is somebody bringing them are they coming like how are how are they getting there like what what is getting them there like what has happened to get them there like help help me understand that piece sure um so it can be in different ways. Um, sometimes it can be from EMS or police are called to a situation where they find someone. Sometimes they're unconscious because it kind of depends on if, you know, there's been an addiction aspect of this and if they're under the influence of different things. Um, so sometimes they are brought in in different states of level of consciousness, but sometimes they are brought in just by our law enforcement officials. And sometimes it can be difficult because they're sometimes they don't want to be here because they have this false sense of safety with their trafficker. And so a lot of times it's not their choice and they don't want to be here. And, you know, a lot of times they weren't seeking out help. Um, and usually we will get a call from one of the law enforcement agencies that they're bringing in a child. Um, and again, going back to the trauma-informed approach, we don't want to re-traumatize these children by bringing them through the waiting room and having, you know, them be uh, spectated, you know, by people in the waiting room. Um, so we bring them in kind of a back entrance that we have. Um, we'll register them in the room and try to protect their privacy and their sense of dignity as much as we can. Um, and, but that's how we are usually told that these children are coming in. That's a, an excellent approach to really try to help them right from the beginning and yeah. feeling like they're in a safe environment. You're, and you're talking, you're talking specifically about pediatric um, patients. And I'm curious, how, how young do you see trafficking victims? Or, I'm, you know, I imagine you see them all the way through their teens, but how young of people do we tend to see? Um, we've seen, you know, up into, as far as pediatrics, you know, up to the age of 17 or 18, and that's when we're kind of getting out of the pediatric world. But we've seen some children, I think this time, as young as maybe 11 or, you know, early, you know, teenage years that were brought in. And then on the adult side, Tanika, you, you focus more on the adult side of care. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you're doing? How are these patients presenting to you typically? Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, we do see both children and adults, but with the adults, um, they will typically, and they can respond to any of our 10 facilities. And a lot of the times if they are brought in either with medic or law enforcement, um, it can be the closest facility. So that's kind of the one of the things too that helps them is we are responding to where they want to go, not making them come to one specific place. Um, so we we do respond, um, you know, to wherever they present to. And one of the things, kind of the same thing, we always want to make sure that, you know, if they are um, cold, that they have a nice warm blanket, that they have a pillow. And I know those seem so like, really? But it means the world because a lot of the times, especially here in, at Maine, pillows are hard to come by. <laughs> um, but like they said, they may have not even been able to sleep on a pillow for who knows how long. They might be sleeping on a floor somewhere. They might not be sleeping at all because some uh, sometimes those traffickers make them go 
all night long. So it just depends on, you know, what situations they're in. But we want to definitely get them something to eat. Um, you know, if I have to go down to the cafeteria and get them some pizza or some chicken fingers or something, um, we'll definitely make sure that they have some food. And then being able to coordinate, you know, with our human trafficking team, and even with our, um, you know, law enforcement human trafficking team, I've had cases where, um, you know, we weren't sure if, if this was a person that they were looking for. And, you know, I was able to reach out to the the victim's assistance with the trafficking team and we were able to identify this person was somebody they were looking for. So just being able to have those connections and those resources um, just makes it so much better um, for the patient and being able to help provide, you know, safe places for them to go to. I'm trying to wrap my, my head around this. It just sounds terrible and it, you know, makes me think of law and order um, it, and to think of it happening in real life right here. You know, I, I'm wondering if you, you can, if you have information on, on the scope of the problem, like how any statistics around the numbers of folks that we're talking about either nationally or locally? Sure. So I think we're looking at statistics from 2020, um, and Polaris um, identified 16,658 victims of human trafficking in 2020. Um, the statistics for North Carolina specifically were um, 1,103 calls um, to their hotline and there were 260 um, trafficked cases reported. Um, currently, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, North, I know we mentioned that Charlotte is the number one city in North Carolina, but nationwide, North Carolina is ranked ninth in the nation for human trafficking. Um, to kind of put that into perspective, um, the um, depth of the problem that we have here in this state. And we say that there were 260 reported cases, but like we talked about earlier, this is largely a very hidden crime and a lot of these cases do go unreported. So the number is probably much higher. And I know that we read also that social media has increased the recruiting with this by almost 22% just because the accessibility um, that social, me social media has created to access these individuals. Um, I, I was reading um, that I think about on average about 1,700 girls, um, estimated girls are trafficked in North Carolina each year. So what is the, are boys trafficked too? And like, what's that statistic look like? I don't know the um, exact st statistics for males that are trafficked, um, but I know it's, worldwide it's millions and i mean there's no um you know limit on you know gender race um you know economic status that kind of thing i don't think there's one area that's targeted more than another um but i don't know those specific specific statistics around you know what the difference is between males and females yeah i was reading that and you know where you know young men are traffic and i was you know we all automatically think of women females and so um thank you for that so what when a person when a victim comes into the ed like maybe they're not brought in by law enforcement um you know it could be a family member you know it could be themselves i mean it, i could be walking on the street and see someone what what and talking to to a, a random person what are some of the the signs and symptoms or 
you know, things that complaints that, you know, we need to be aware of um, just to be more, you know, have general awareness about this mm-hmm. and helping. We, sure. Um, we train our nurses to look for red flags, um, you know, and we do have a human trafficking screening, but we never want to ask these questions in front of another person that's in the room with them because we, number one, we want to protect the safety of our staff and of the patient and um, make sure that we are not um, introducing any kind of suspicions that we know something is going on. So even if we do recognize that this is a suspicious situation, we don't want to alert um, either the trafficker, the person in the room, or sometimes even the victim that we are aware that this, you know, may be kind of sketchy. Um, And so some of the things that we look for are kind of the, some of the same things that we look for in abuse cases for inconsistency in complaints and in injuries reported. Oftentimes, um, if the trafficker comes in with them, they kind of speak over the other person or don't allow them to speak. Um, Sometimes it can be difficult to have them step outside the room because they don't want to leave their side. And so sometimes when we see those types of behaviors, um, we, you know, can be alerted to some kind of, you know, suspicious activity going on. Um, But sometimes, and a lot of people don't know this either, sometimes it's even the parents that are trafficking their own child. And, you know, as terrible as that sounds, that's a hard reality that that, you know, is a fact. And we with, we have a certain, you know, age range that, you know, once they reach those teenage years, oftentimes we will ask the parents to step out so we can do private questioning with, um, you know, these kids. And this isn't for just you know, suspicion of human trafficking, this is for anything, Um, just because, you know, teenagers are not always going to be in front, you know, honest in front of their parents about, you know, what they're doing. Um, So we just always want to make sure that, you know, we're questioning them privately and not doing that in front of the trafficker. And, you know, sometimes um, the victims are not going to be upfront with what's going on and what their situation is. Um, But when we are alerted to some of these things, we work very closely with our social workers to kind of get the ball rolling with um, reporting some of the findings. And I can also kind of speak to even just some of like the physical complaints. You know, I would be very suspicious, especially if I see, um, you know, a female that's coming in every couple of months for STI checks or with having, you know, active infections or, um, you know, sometimes they'll come in with suicidal or homicidal ideations, um, you know, or mental health in general. So there's, there's a lot of also different physical things that they might come in with to kind of just give those little red flags. Wow. So share with us um, how, what does the training look like? I, I, I don't know if we covered that yet, but, you know, what does the training look like for our clinicians um, so that they can best address, you know, these situations? And I think for, you know, as the SANE nurses, it might be a little bit different than ER nurses because theirs are more of recognizing those red flags. Um, but with all of us, again, we always go back to the the victim-centered um, approach where, you know, just making sure that all of their physical um, needs are met. But when it gets to the point of, um, you know, having to then maybe do a sexual assault exam, um, that's when, you know, the same nurses would come in. And uh, sometimes we in talking and asking certain questions, we're also able to find out 
even more um, information than what they've given to the primary nurse or the physician even. Um, and as SANE nurses, we do tons of, of trainings um, and webinars and conferences, and there's always, um, you know, education for trafficking. So we definitely take advantage of all of the education that's offered and then partnering, partnering with our um, community resources and our, um, you know, other trafficking teams across the state and being able to learn how other cities and other towns handle um, human trafficking. Let's talk a little bit more about the partnering with other folks. So um, I, I know that earlier this year there was a big operation that was done to um, identify and help a large number of victims of human trafficking. And you guys were intimately involved in that operation. Um, I'd, lo I'd love it if you could share what you can share on, on that. You know, who did you work with and how did you prepare and then how, what happened? What was the outcome? Stephanie, I'll speak of that. So we had, um, and it, it was all in the news, so I feel comfortable speaking about it here, um, but we partnered with multiple law enforcement agencies in our community um, for probably about six months to prepare um, for a very large scale operation that actually helped return 157 children between the eight, all, up to the age of 18 to their homes. Um, some of those children were seen, um, you know, at our facility and cared for, um, which was a huge operation by multiple people within our facility and in our community to make sure that we were ready, prepared um, to care for them. Um, it was um, one of those events that you won't forget um, if you were here as a part of it. Um, it was um, very impactful uh, and, you know, I've, we I, we strive here to always be a safe haven for patients and and that partnership through that event you know I personally believe and have been told that will um, created relationships relationships are already there right we work with our law enforcement partners every day um, but I personally believe it made it a lot stronger and it created a huge uh, bond of trust that you know they know that we are ready at all times to you know activate our teams and our teams did an incredible job caring for patients. Um, through that event um, and just can't speak highly enough of the work that was done, you know, and maybe through those um, when we care for these patients and children when they come to us, whether, you know, it was then or now or in the future, um, our hope is to always plant a seed and to show them that they can trust us, that they can trust our law enforcement partners and that we are here to help them and, and to help them, you know, get out of these situations and get resources to have a better um, life going forward. Um, I, I personally got to witness some of that and, and will tell you that it was um, life changing for many that were involved. I don't know if Angie, Jen or Tanika want to add anything to that, but they were all very much a part. Um, speaking on the preparation that we had for that event, we knew that the operation was taking place, but we didn't know the number of children that we were going to get and how many to expect um, because after speaking with law enforcement officials, they said they may go in um, expecting to recover one to two children and they could find, you know, six to 10, you know, we just didn't know what numbers we're going to bring in from this. Um, so we made sure that we had a core group of nurses that were trained in this event and trained on what to do whenever these children arrived. And we made sure during that time period that we had 24-7 um, coverage um, with those nurses so that somebody was here in the event that one of those children were brought in. 
One thing that I'll add to that um, is that, you know, our provider team, um, uh, Dr. Stacey Reynolds, I know, was interviewed um, by multiple, you know, news um, sources, and she is such an incredible part of this work, continues to be, has been, um, is, you know, a huge part every day and such an advocate for any patient needing our care that's been human trafficked. Um, you know, she um, was very much a part of that with us and did an incredible job. Our providers were all, you know, and our nurses and, and uh, Tanika's same team and Angie's team. I will tell you, having been through it, you know, this is, is in the middle of COVID, right, which hasn't stopped. Um, all of them were working their normal shifts and doing this above and beyond, including our provider team. They were coming in at 2 a.m. when a case came in. Um, they still do that today. Um, you know, it's all above and beyond their standard work because our hospitals are all very busy. Um, and, and to me, you know, that speaks volumes about the people that they are and, and what they want to do and the mission that we live every day. So I just personally, you know, want to always thank them for all that they do. It's incredible work. There was a lot of dedication to this event, um, you know, and we will always be ready to partner um, and want to be here for anyone needing our care, you know, being an adult or a child in our community that we can help. So, so that operation sounds like it was incredibly successful, over 150 children. Is Are there ongoing efforts or projects that are going on that you could speak to? Sure. So, um, yes, that was very successful. Um, there um, is always um, operations going on. You know, we don't like giving details of around those so that we can make sure they're successful. But just, you know, I would want everyone to be encouraged in that we work heavily with our community partners. Our community partners are constantly being proactive to try to help mitigate the circumstances in our community to make sure that we are um, recovering um, lost, you know, and missing and exploited children and adults and to returning them to their homes and their lives and getting them the help that they need. Um, uh, you know, we are definitely in tune to the fact that the work on that is happening every single day. There's an entire task force here in Mecklenburg County dedicated to that. And I can, I have been a part of conversations where they have helped other cities, um, you know, throughout our state. And uh, there are constantly missions throughout our country. So there is a ton of work happening. Um, just can't give details, but just know we are we are mission ready. Um, our community partners are mission ready. And we are, um, you know, it's, it's an everyday um, task that we um, will work on continually until this problem has been resolved. And I want to share, um, as we're closing, um, the Polaris Project, P-O-L-A-R-I-S, is a national hotline, and you can report anyone or anything that you see is suspicious. They always say, if you see something, say something, and that number is 1-888-373-7888. They actually have all the law enforcement with special training to actually respond. So it, it's not just for Charlotte, it's national, and you can report anything that you see that's suspicious. Well, this has been such a, um, you know, a, a, a great topic um, to discuss, you know, sad that is, you know, to hear about how our young people or, or just adults and children in general are impacted by this horrific um, situation of human trafficking. Um, and so I, I want to, I know Stephanie would agree to thank you for coming on um, the podcast today and just really, you know, um, representing nursing, but also educating us about human trafficking and what that means. And so thank you for 
just intentional, being intentional about your words and um, and educating the public. Um, before we close out all of our podcast recordings, um, we always um, reflect on our mission and vision. And, and I'm not sure if our guests today know, I'm, I'm, I know that our um, audience that listens to us all the time knows this, but first, the first Best Nurse podcast really came from our um, Atrium Health mission and vision, and and that was to be the first and the best. And and you know um, we've had some modifications to our vision recently, but we're still the first and the best. And um, this is the first and best nurse podcast. So. But we always also like to reflect on the mission because we as teammates of Atrium Health, you know, we really live by our mission, by our culture commitments. Um, that is something that is embedded in our culture. And so I always give our guests who, um, you know, are teammates of Atrium an opportunity to kind of reflect on the mission, but also kind of tie back what they're doing um, every day back to um, the mission and sharing that with our audience. So just a reminder, our mission is to improve health, elevate hope, and advance healing for all. So I'll open it up to our guests to kind of reflect on that and share with the audience what um, that mission means to them from where they are. I can start. So I love the advanced healing for all. I'm so thankful that I work at an organization that really promotes diversity and inclusion and um, is, embraces people of all different cultures and all different backgrounds. So that advance for all is something that we really strive for in our same program to make sure that we are available for for all. And I can kind of go next. Um, well, I, I definitely think as, um, and that's probably why I'm so passionate about us being a sane nurse and um, being able to truly give that patient one-on-one -on -one my full attention. But a lot of the times we are the only person that is able to maybe give them a little glimpse of hope. When they can, when they have hope, then they, they can fight. So, you know, when we're able to really give the education and the resources and show them that this, there is a way out and there is healing on the other side, then they are, they can do anything. So I think that's really um, why I love what I do. Thank you for that reflection. Um, one of my reflections um, from being a part of this is the teamwork that um, is involved in all of this. And, you know, one of our cultural commitments is that we work as a team to make great things happen. And we had so many people that are a part of this from, you know, our law enforcement team to our nursing team, our provider team. Um, and I don't know that um, I mentioned these individuals earlier, but our child life team is incredible with working with these children as well and helping them feel like children again. You know, they come in with these um, very like hard shells up, you know, and the child life specialists kind of work with them to make them feel like children again, you know, help them watch movies and color and, you know, be able to be a child when they haven't been and they've been forced into these very mature situations. And I also want to give a shout out to our inpatient nursing team as well, because I know a lot of these children spent a lot of time in some of the inpatient units for months. And I know these nurses took fantastic care of them um, and had 
quite a few, you know, success stories and were able to build rapport with these children for months. So I wanted to give them a shout out as well. Um, but it's just um, so exciting. And um, I just feel so, you know, humbled to be part of this team and the incredible work that we do every day. Um, I'll just add real quick, this is Monica. So, you know, our mission here at Adrian Health of improving health, elevating hope and advancing healing for all. Um, I feel like we help to instill that in our teammates from the moment they walk through our doors. Even when we interview people, we, we talk about that as what we live sleep and breathe here at Atrium Health. Um, and I hope my uh, my goal every day is that our patients feel that and they feel that our genuine caring and compassion for them um, shows what we do and what we stand for and, and our vision to be the national leader for health learning in our community. Um, you know, again, I feel like everything that we do daily is to inevitably be able to, um, you know, be there for our community, um, you know, improve their health, elevate their hope, and and give them advanced healing. Um, our teams embody that. They, they show that in all they do when I talk about them coming in extra and staying late and coming early and being mission ready at all times. You know, it's no small task um, to do that. We take care of so many types of patients in our emergency departments and our hospitals. And, you know, I, I don't think, I always laugh, I don't think that, you know, when I got the first phone call for one of these operations, I was told, Monica, we got a big project coming and we were in the middle of COVID. And when I called, you know, my uh, senior leaders, the answer wasn't no, it was okay, we'll do what we have to do. And I feel like we feel that every day. I don't think I'm ever told no. Um, we, we don't ever turn away patients here. Um, we wanna be the first and best choice for care always and, and delivering excellent care is what we strive to do every single day. So um, I just thank all of our teammates, all of our providers and, um, you know, and then our patients for trusting us and our community for continuing to trust us. So um, it's been a joy and a privilege and we'll continue to do this work. Wow. Well said you guys truly are living out the mission when, yeah. when it comes to human trafficking victims i just gotta say it is so evident that through your passion and your love that you truly are you're improving their health number one physically you're you're meeting their needs but you're just giving them hope that they probably had let go of and then you're helping them heal not just physically but emotionally spiritually i mean you guys are you guys are rock stars carmen and I want to sincerely thank you, as she said, for educating us, but we also want to recognize you. So we're going to be yes. sending you each a nursing star pin. We've Ooh. made a donation to the nursing foundation in your honor. So the nursing foundation here at Atrium is a fund where people can donate on behalf of a nurse or a group of nurses. And the funds raised in that fund actually go to ongoing professional development and nurse nursing research. So uh, it's a it's a win win for us. We're gonna get those in the mail to you. And for anybody that's listening that wants to know more about the nursing fund, you you can certainly find information and make a donation at the uh, Atrium Health Foundation. Thank you guys. Congratulations, stars. <laughs>